Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday morning uh, Ask the Experts session. It's uh, great to have everyone. Hopefully, you're enjoying your coffee or your cider in preparation for Thanksgiving. Uh, it's an important week coming up, and hopefully uh, everyone has planned it accordingly uh, with, with great caution to make sure that everyone stays safe during this uh, holiday week that's coming up. Uh, it presents some challenges, and uh, I'm sure John will address some of these, and we certainly will be happy to answer questions related to the Thanksgiving holiday and what you can probably do to stay safe. Uh, this pandemic continues to rage. We're in the in the midst of, uh, again, well, once again, a, a hot zone, if you may, here in Connecticut. Uh, but we will make it through. We did before, and uh, there are good news down the pike. I think John will probably address the, the vaccine. And uh, and in fact, uh, we you know we uh, just got news through. You can you can actually now look at the the watch, and the watch tells you that Pfizer and what they just told me that Pfizer and Moderna are applying for emergency authorization today uh, from the FDA, and that's fantastic news. I don't think uh, any of us, and John will probably share this with me, that no, no one thought that by perhaps before Christmas, we may actually have a vaccine and may be putting it into people's arms. Uh, we'll give you information as that evolves. Um, I do want to take a chance to uh, uh, congratulate two people, two of our faculty members who uh, were uh, given uh, incredible recognition yesterday by the, by the medical staff here at Connecticut Children's. One is our own Ken Spiegelman. Uh, Ken, congratulations for being the Community Physician of the Year. Uh, you certainly deserve it. You have been terrific, uh, amazing champion for health. Uh, uh, both in the community here in Connecticut Children's. So Ken Spiegelman, congratulations. And our own Ann Melanies, uh, who's been uh, you know, eternal here at Connecticut Children's and she won the Physician of the Year Award for Connecticut Children's. So we will get to, the good news for us is we'll get, even though Ann is usually in Farmington and elsewhere, we will be able to see her picture as we walk into the building uh, in, uh, with, uh, with a nice uh, pictorial of her and it will just bring a smile to our face uh, every every morning when we walk in. We'll have to take down Dr. Zucker, but you know he's he, uh, we'll send him a picture, and uh, you can still re remember him through uh, many years of his work. So with that, I'm going to ask uh, John uh, to give us the infectious disease update for COVID-19, and then that will be followed by Dr. Seth Lapak, one of our wonderful pediatric cardiologists, that will tell us uh, about return to sports, a ma major issue that all of you have to grapple with on any given day with COVID-19. So, uh, John, if you can take it over. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, a pleasure to be here and uh, happy holidays coming up to everyone. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today and uh, I'll get going to do that. Uh, I can get my mask off so I can speak clearly. Um, there's a lot going on right now and I think the metaphor I will use is you remember that we were the eye of the hurricane all summer. I put that out for you and um, Unfortunately, when you're in the eye of the hurricane, the hurricane does come back as it's passing through. And so we are in the middle of a national epidemic and um, no question it's hurricane force, but this will pass. Uh, we went through the eye this summer and this hurricane is going to pass and uh, we're gonna talk about that. But right now, until it passes, we're in for a tough few months. Uh, the new reported uh, cases in the United States are at a remarkable level. I guess I never thought I would see 200,000 cases a day. We're at 170, it'll be 200 within a few days. Um, it's incredible. Uh, there is no national plan, um, that's just factual. Uh, every state is sort of on their own and um, that's a problem. Uh, we are going to need in order to get this under control. And by the way, if it's not under control when immunization starts, that will create tremendous logistical problems. So we really want this curve bent before immunization start because then you can actually logistically get out there and do it. Be very difficult with this caseload. 
in any case, this is where we are. It is what it is, and we're going to have to grapple with it over the next few months. Now, uh, there's no question uh, that deaths lag. Uh, they're already starting to shoot up, and we will be at 2,000 deaths per day shortly. That's just mathematics. I've told you this before. It's not any sort of magical prediction. The math shows we will probably be at 2,000 uh, deaths a day um, within a week or so. It's not a few weeks anymore. And uh, this is a huge burden on the United States. Each one of these people is a person. They have love, family, uh, they love. And um, I, I think we cannot depersonalize this. We've done that to some extent in this country, but we really can't do that. This is touching almost everyone now. Uh, and this is a very big deal. Now, um, unfortunately, we are number one in the world. We are exceptional country. We have the most confirmed new cases per 100,000 population in the world. That is not a place I want the United States to be, nor does anyone else. We should not be there. These are all the other countries. Now, I don't believe the Russian data. They're, they're one of the best. No one believes that. But you can believe, um, for example, that we're right next to Brazil uh, in terms of new cases. However, there are some countries in the EU, particularly France, and Spain that are in trouble, and they have the same sort of growth that we have right now. So we are not alone, but we are the most, um, not a place we would like to be. Now, the Midwest is the epicenter of the United States COVID epidemic right now. Um, these are astronomical seven-day rolling average new cases per 100,000, uh, almost 200 in North South Dakota. I mean, these are incredible numbers. Uh, they show, in my view, factual that um, uh, public health measures were never instituted or were blocked in many of these states, and this is the result. It is pure mathematics of the R value of the virus and the death rate that we already knew. This is just math happening. It is not politics. Now, let's die, do a deep dive on one state that's a large state, Iowa. Um, we actually have close friends in Iowa now who have completely locked down. Uh, they're in a hyper-focused area. There are over 4,000 new cases daily in Iowa. Uh, and you can see the death rate is now shooting up and it will shoot up even further. Uh, the ICU beds, you can see hospitalizations in the state are shooting up. There are a number of rural areas where the hospitals in Iowa are already overwhelmed. There are some outstanding medical centers uh, in, in Iowa, but they are also becoming inundated. So why did this happen? I think this is, as a public health person, why did this happen? And the issue is mathematics. The math of the virus were clear, and there was a misunderstanding about that you could bend the math by talking about it. Now, this is Iowa's community spread right now. I didn't include every county, but look at the numbers. There's one county with 335 average new cases per 100,000. I mean, this is an astronomical epidemic in Iowa, affecting every rural county, overwhelming the hospitals, uh, and um, it will be, leave a lot of people dead. Nobody in Iowa wanted this. They are not bad people. No one wants this. Why did this happen? And I think you'll see that when I read what the governor said, the complete misunderstanding of the epidemic. After the election, the governor of Iowa said the election validates our public health response to this virus. Could they won? And they had no public health response to the virus. There was public health, no mandates. Everyone does what they want, and we respect the people of Iowa to do the right thing. It sounds great, but it's confusion between leading the correct public health response required to control an epidemic where we knew the math and to save the lives with political popularity. They are not related. The math is the math. The virus will do what it does, and everyone's going to vote for what's easiest. That's what we do, right? Hey, I'll vote for no taxes. Great. 
people vote for that. It doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. Now, the governor has switched course completely 180 degrees, and there's now a mask mandate in Iowa. However, it's exempt for eating food, bars and restaurants are open, uh, all religious events are allowed, athletes are in sporting events, and all of that is exempt from masks. So you and I both know this is not a mask mandate, and that, that horse is out of the barn in Iowa and will not be stopped at this, with this sort, of, um, this sort of public health response. Now, where did this come from? And I looked historically, I've done this once before, about six months for you. But the reality is that critical public health interventions require public cooperation. They are not popular and they often require mandates. And here's an example. Um, you remember the cholera outbreak year, hundreds of years ago in London where we figured out that the well was spreading cholera around. So they just told everyone, hey, don't use that well, right? Everyone will do the right thing. Of course not. Everybody still used the well. So they had to take the pump handle off so they couldn't use the well and they stopped the cholera epidemic. That's the reality of public health. In the Ebola spread in Africa, burial rites were spreading Ebola everywhere. And they had to actually intervene and prevent the burial practices to stop the Ebola spread in Africa. This is very recent. Polio epidemics, quarantine of children and families in the United States with fines or imprisonment to obtain required compliance. And you can see there's a polio poster there if you look at it closely, it tells you that if it's a $100 fine or you go to jail, $100 in that era was a lot of money. It's about $1,000 in today's money. So this was standard operating procedure in the United States to stop epidemics in the pre-vaccine era. We sort of forgot about all that because we have all these effective vaccines. And this is a very interesting one. Polio is a great, uh, you know, it's, you're driving along and you see a sign that says, hey, by the way, there's a big polio outbreak, so you're welcome to come back, <laughs> you know, read that sign. And and you can see the car stopped with kids and they're looking at the sign. They're not going to go any farther. So this kind of stuff has been going on for a long time in the United States in the pre-vaccine era. We have seatbelt rules. You can't smoke in bars. There are all sorts of things that we do to maintain our public health and save lives. And this is no different. So, again, I, I, I want to it's just factual. Uh, these are the signs, uh, types of public health interventions that you have to do. And they are not always popular and they require leadership to get the public where we need them to go. Now, there are uh, uh, other quarantine with legal penalties, smallpox, especially in the pre-vaccine era. That's the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, smallpox, very strong penalties for disobeying quarantine with smallpox. Diphtheria, when we used to have it, penalty of the law, you must quarantine. So again, this is something that the United States has been doing for 200 years or more uh, when we've had outbreaks. This is not something new and I think has been misunderstood by some of the leadership. It's about math and leading the public to do the right thing to save lives. Now the Connecticut, unfortunately, um, we are in the middle of a resurgence. We're up to 2000 new cases a day. And as of yesterday, a 6% test positivity rate, that's probably higher now. So we are in the midst of a very robust resurgence which reinforces the importance of everyone's tired but now's not the time to let up. Suck it up, we gotta wear those masks, we gotta stay physically distant, we shouldn't travel. And I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. And this information, we should tell our patients and our families and our communities and say, unfortunately, this is where it is. But remember, the hurricane will pass. This will pass after immunizations next year. But for now, we're going to need to double down. This is Connecticut County averages daily new cases per 100,000. We have a significant problem in Fairfield County, New Haven County. Um, now, a change here, which I think people need to understand, um, 
Litchfield up in the Northwest had very little COVID in the first wave. And it is, it is a hotbed right now. It's a rural area with few hospital beds. So those patients are gonna be flowing into Hartford and are gonna, are gonna strain even more uh, some of the hospital capacity we have as this grows in Connecticut. We are gonna to need to keep watch on this, but I, I think it's unlikely the governor will not have to do some more robust uh, activities to really get this under control. I don't know what he can shut down, but we may get to that in Connecticut. Massachusetts um, is similar, although uh, there are areas, I didn't show it today, Berkshire County is still low and Cape Cod is still low because I think everybody left after Labor Day. But Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, they're in the 50s uh, and the eastern part of Massachusetts similar to this. So, you know, we have problems in our, in our uh, two-state area. Where do you go for the holidays? This is the Connecticut map. You know, I guess you could go to New York, um, but look, let's get realistic. Uh, the, the reason New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut are all okay is that we have an agreement. All the governors agreed they would allow it, but the numbers are still high in all the states. And so look, um, avoid travel if possible. Um, I think it's really tough on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is my family's favorite holiday by far. Um, you know, it doesn't have presents. It's just about family getting together and it's about the love and of course about the food. We can't do that this year. And, and uh, there was an interview with Tony Fauci uh, today on NPR where you know, his three daughters are not coming home because they don't want to hurt him by mistake. So don't travel. Think carefully. I think I see Elizabeth put that red in there. Thank you. Um, if you decide to travel, you need to be safe for 14 days before travel. You don't want to introduce COVID. Don't fly, especially if you're high risk. Wear masks at all times when you visit, except when eating. Wash your hands frequently. Stay distant. Don't eat all together in the kitchen, the dining room. You're going to need to spread around and wear your mask and take it off just to eat. Um, you have to stay physically distant. The test, if you get tested, it means you're just negative that one day. It doesn't mean you're not incubating and couldn't give it two days later. Have good ventilation. Open the windows or, or better still be outside. It might end up being relatively warm. And... Um, keep gathering small and of short duration. My preference would be, and again, our family just came to the decision for Thanksgiving. We're not gonna travel, it's painful. Uh, we would love to see our grandkid, uh, but we're just not going to do it. So please avoid travel if possible. Now there's some new data which are interesting. We still do not understand this organism. Children antibodies are different than the adult antibodies after infection. What I wanna show you is the adults COVID, ARDS, the severely ill adults, we have the red curves, make a lot of neutralizing antibody post-infection. That is not true of children with MISI and children with primary COVID. Their antibodies appear to be less avid for the virus and less neutralizing. And you can actually see that in the top as well, where the dots are lower on the right, my right, than they are on adults who've been ill. We need to understand this because immunization of children will be the next phase. We, the vaccines are not being tested in children under 12. And we're gonna to need to understand this to determine what vaccine will be best for them. And we do not have those data yet. So children are still going to be a puzzle for us as to how and why we will immunize them. Now, there was an outbreak, you know, COVID is absolutely a risk to national security. Um, there's just no question about it. There was an outbreak on an aircraft carrier. They published in the New England Journal it's very interesting. So 1,200, it's about 5,000 crew members on an aircraft carrier. 26% of the crew got infected. The vast majority had no symptoms when they were positive, but about half ultimately developed symptoms. 
23 were hospitalized, four in the ICU, and there was a death. Healthy young adult died. That's not so good for morale on an aircraft carrier to know that a few people are going to die from this infection. So there is this is a huge national security issue. And um, the Navy now quarantines, tests before they ever get on the boat. There's a 14-day quarantine on base. They're tested. They go on the boat. And even with that, there's another outbreak on a ship uh, you may have read in the newspaper. So uh, this continues to be um, a national security issue for us. Now, there is a new monoclonal anti-spike protein. It's different than the one the president got, but it's a similar strategy against the spike protein. Uh, it's now available. Unfortunately, it was approved by the FDA in emergency use. Unfortunately, there are only 300,000 doses available for the entire country. They're going to be allocated to hospitals. It is only for ambulatory high-risk patients who are not hospitalized and not sick yet, but are high-risk. And the reason is when they gave it to sick adults who are already on the ventilator, already very ill, the monoclonal antibody did not help. It might even have made them sicker. So it's not for patients who are already ill, but it does seem to prevent severe illness. It's an infusion. So you're going to have to be in some sort of infusion center to get it as an ambulatory patient and you're COVID positive. That's some logistical issues. High-risk pediatric patients can be given it if they are older than 12. And we have five doses in our pharmacy available. So is this going to make a huge impact across the country? Probably not, but it's nice to have an extra tool in our armamentarium should we need it. And we have a few doses and we're ready to go should we need it. Now, the two vaccines that are available, this is the newest one, Moderna. It's an mRNA vaccine. We don't know all the trade secrets, but it's encased in some sort of lipid. And it seemed to be very effective. They gave it to thousands of people, 95 contracted SARS, and only five people in the vaccine group got it, and they were not very sick. And it did include elderly and high risk. So we're going to have two mRNA vaccines in December that will be licensed for emergency use. And uh, the state is already planning on immunization of essential personnel, high-risk patients next. And there's a whole cascade of how this will roll out. Um, and I'm optimistic. I think that the data showed there were very few severe reactions, if any, mostly sort of sore arms, a little bit of achies. And um, it's, it, it's remarkably efficacious for a respiratory virus vaccine. So these are very good data. And um, I'm confident uh, that we will move to an immunization stage where this is going to work. And there's also another vaccine by Novavax that's recombinant spike protein. It's about a month behind of these and, and the early data with that shows it works quite well also. So we're going to have several vaccines that seem to have efficacy. Now, a couple of other interesting things that have come up. We've seen a few patients who have COVID, they get better, they're negative, and then a test gets done for some other reason and they're positive again. And apparently this happens. And this is a study, oh, it's a letter, um, uh, I, I think it was into JAMA Internal Medicine, and it showed that they found 18% of patients with COVID-19 became positive after they recovered and they, had, they were already negative and then later on they got positive again. They have no idea if this is infectious. We don't know if, if this is a new acquisition of an infection or it's the same old virus that happens to be waxing and waning. We do not fully understand this yet. Uh, and it turned out that only one of the samples of PCR were actually infectious. Most of the people who had recurrence of the positive test were not infectious, which is good news. So we're going to need to understand this a little better. But to reiterate, you may turn positive again after you got better and you were negative. It looks like 
one out of, only one out of 32 of positive patients who did that were infectious. So it's unlikely you were infectious if that happens. Um, healthcare personnel. These are very important data. This just came out. Uh, this came out uh, MMWR, uh, and I actually think it was underreported. So the CDC looked at thousands of healthcare workers, um, and then looked at healthcare workers who have died from COVID. Actually, I'm going to show you the numbers. It's actually, a lot of healthcare workers, and high risk were males, 65 and older, Asian and Black. And I'll show you some of those data. Uh, this is very interesting, and um, some of it bears out what we already know, but the numbers are quite, quite um, stark. So if you look at the total, there are 100,000 healthcare workers in the United States that the CDC found were infected. They could not track everyone, but they know 641 died from COVID. That's actually a lot of healthcare workers. Uh, if you look at wars, for example, it's usually a lot less doctors and nurses die. This is a lot. Uh, and that's a 1% case fatality rate. Um, now, if you look by age group and go down to 65 and above, 8.79 case fatality rate. It's an enormous increase. And so we know elderly healthcare providers are at high risk of dying from COVID if they get it. This is an important information for all of us as we strategize. 55 to 64, much less, but twice what the total was in terms of case fatality ratio. And males more likely to die and I, I, didn't, I don't know if I have the slide, but also uh, Asian American and African American higher risk. So these, we don't fully understand this, but this does need to inform who we immunize and who we put at risk in our healthcare organizations. Um, oh, and who got it? Healthcare providers. By far, healthcare support workers. These are people in nursing homes, primarily in nursing homes, taking care of all these people. Many of them got infected. Nurses next in hospitals, administrative staff member, but that was often, that was community acquired, and then physicians down as third or fourth, fifth. So, and then it goes down the list of the most likely healthcare providers to be infected uh, during an outbreak. So these are important data for us to understand, and we need to protect our personnel with appropriate PPE and, and countermeasures as we have been doing. All right, um, this is now the good, the bad, the ugly in German. Um, uh, and I'm looking for Russian. I haven't found it yet, but I know it exists. Okay, that'll be my next one. Um, and again, Lester Holt has now reverted to this as well. So I feel that we're in very good company having started this. Um, the USA has an uncontrolled epidemic. We're going to be at 200,000 cases a day. Um, however, we're starting to see glimmers that regional public health responses, much like the Iowa governor changing course, are getting better. There's a dawning knowledge that this is about the math, not about the politics, and that public health countermeasures will need to be done to stop this outbreak and save lives. It's just fact. The deaths are increasing. Unfortunately, you can just do the math. They tend to lag four to six weeks. They will continue to increase because they lag the new cases. It's going to be winter and holiday season. Um, as we talked about travel, these are going to create new pressures and challenges on this outbreak and it's up to us as public health officials, healthcare providers, the community looks to us to walk the walk and tell people what they need to do to be safe during this winter. Uh, we have a resurgence in New England. Um, it is not being controlled by modulation of public health measures yet. And in my opinion, New England will be having more harsh restrictions in the near future. The vaccines appear to work it's very exciting. We will start immunizations, most likely with essential personnel this winter. 
and in the spring for the general population. Again, thank you, everyone. Have a safe and good Thanksgiving, and I look forward to seeing you again after Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you, John, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Um, anyone who wants to Zoom with John on Thanksgiving, he said he would be more than happy to, to connect with you, but promises not to talk about COVID on Thanksgiving Day for me. Turkey only, that, that's correct. Do turkeys get it? I guess that would be a no, question. Not yet. Right, not yet, especially if they're cooked there, okay. Um, so now we have uh, Seth Lapik, who's one of our cardiologists. Uh, Seth has been with uh, Connecticut Children's uh, for, for a number of years, uh, almost since it opened, I believe. Uh, before. Before that, uh, so, so the full uh, 25 years. Uh, so he'll be on our uh, celebration list for the 25th anniversary in April uh, if in, in the world of pediatric cardiology. Uh, he's going to tell us about uh, return to sports, cardiac evaluation, at least for now. So that's that's a good thing that he puts the caveat there because there are a lot of questions about uh, myocarditis, et cetera. So Seth, uh, take it on. So good morning, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, this uh, I was asked a, a, about a month and a half ago, two months ago, to do this when a lot of the pediatricians, we were getting a lot of calls, a lot of the pediatricians saying, what do we do when we get these people, the uh, athletes coming back and their schools are insisting we have some kind of a, form to fill out for uh, return to sports if they were COVID positive. And um, I'm going to be mainly speaking about the asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic patients, the patients that were hospitalized, uh, we've already been involved with, and, and we'll take that, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that show. But the, and, and our colleagues throughout New England um, are running into the same problem, and we've had forums about it. But um, it, you know, since uh, May of 2014, the articles just started pouring out and there's a, a huge demand for information, but virtually no uh, information uh, to give out, no real data yet. Um, you know, in law, if you have the, uh, if you have facts, you pound the facts. If you uh, don't have facts, you pound the law. And then if you don't have either, you pound the table. Well, we don't have an ability to do either, any of this. But uh, every few months, there was another uh, article coming out. Uh, this was a, a, a fairly nice one for the American College of Cardiology from a pediatric uh, perspective. Then there was another interim guidelines. And then the Brits came out for elite athletes only, and they were very restrictive. Uh, a lot of MRIs being done on a lot of people to find out uh, what's going on. Um, finally, uh, or almost finally, I thought it was finally, uh, in uh, October, the uh, American College of Cardiology um, uh, Sports uh, Council came out with a, a very comprehensive uh, uh, recommendations that we'll go over in a, in a, in a second. Um, and, and it was a little bit more uh, uh, restrictive or, or involved than the, uh, the first pediatric one, which we'll get back to. Um, but then there started to come out, uh, come out in the press and the, and the lay press just jumps on these, these MRI studies of uh, athletes uh, that are showing late gadolinium enhancement and scarring in the in people that were asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, um, and uh, they just keep coming out. This was a group out of uh, this was an article um, out of uh, Ohio State. Twenty six athletes were checked, and I think about uh, eight had late gadolinium enhancement, as suggestive of prior myocarditis. Um, uh, uh, this hit another lay press. This was uh, pre-proofed, and if you look at the date, it was October 
29th and on October 30th, uh, something in the lay press was highlighting this. It was a West Virginia uh, a university where they looked at 64 student athletes. Um, and uh, I think over half had, um, uh, uh, nearly half had pericardial effusions. Interestingly, none of them had late gadolinium enhancement on their MRI suggesting maybe Ohio is different than West Virginia. Um, more likely that even with the newer Lake Lucerne MRI guidelines for myocarditis and old myocarditis, we really don't have a handle on exactly what, what that means. That didn't stop or, I mean, the New York Times and two days ago or three days ago just came out with, um, it was more of a, a discussion by a, a, this uh, Dr. Metzl from the Hospital for uh, Special Surgery, and it had some very good points. He's, he uses uh, I a lot in, in, the, in the article, if you read the article, um, and he suggests evidence-based medicine uh, was used in, in their article, and it was, it was a, a good review, but bottom line, by the end of it, it was everybody's an individual, we're really not sure, and if you feel bad, do what your grandmother said. If you're feeling sick, you don't get out and exercise. Um, so the big question is, are we looking for needles in haystacks? Is it a real thing that these asymptomatic, moderately symptomatic uh, student athletes, are they gonna be uh, getting into trouble? Uh, or is it the tip of an iceberg and we're, we shouldn't be hiding our heads in the sand? Um, Dr. Schreiber was saying that we don't know about why some people are affected differently by uh, the immune responses and the body's response based on age, race, gender. We just don't know. Um, we don't want things to, we, we'd like to things keep, be kept in balance because exercise is all its huge um, uh, advantages. It's okay if we're a little cautious and get out of balance, but we don't want to really get too far out of balance. Um, where nobody, where, you know, fear leads to the dark side and, and kids are locked up. Um, you know, but when you guys are getting these, these, these letters from the, the coaches, you know, uh, how, how are you supposed to respond? Um, everybody wants to, you know, protect their kids and these things are going out, you know, is my child going to die? Should I play sports or I have to play sports? Um, so, uh, in hospitalized patients with moderate to severe C19, uh, many of them, they were older, they had pre-existing conditions. There was a huge incidence of, um, of, uh, myocarditis and cardiac involvement, um, with inconsistent evidence of uh, direct myocardial invasion. Uh, the, the prevalence, uh, and clinical implications and the cardiac pathology in athletes and those asymptomatic are really unknown. Uh, the definition of an athlete is unknown. I always wonder why we're only concerned about athletes because all kids get up and run around. And, and is it the extreme level of athleticism that puts people at risk? We'll briefly touch on that. Uh, generally, the, the ACC, though, uses the general, generally considered individuals who place a high premium on training, competition, sports, and achievement. That's pretty vague. Um, but like I said, there's now widely uh, publicized uh, reports of these asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic people. Um, in the absence of definitive data, uh, trying to decide what to do with risk stratification, who should be risk stratified, is a challenge at best. Um, some of the uh, guidelines are, are, uh, or suggestions are, or, um, are pushing, you know, uh, the British study that 
you know, everybody's got to get an MRI uh, to look for late gadolinium enhancement to see if they've had anything post COVID. Well, if you do a little quick back of the envelope calculation, uh, if 35 to 45 million uh, kids, six to 18 participate in some form of athletics and there's in, in the US 8 million ha uh, high school ath athletes. Well, if you just figure, I guess the 4% was a few weeks ago, now we're up to 6% positive test rate. Uh, that's an enormous number of, uh, if you just use the 8 million high school students, that's 320,000 athletes that would need to be evaluated. Um, so the mechanism of COVID-19 for the myocardial injury, again, remains unclear, and I am not an expert at this in any fashion, but, uh, you know, is it cytokine mediated? Is it a demand ischemia because the kids are, are sick? Is it uh, virally induced myocarditis? Uh, non-ischemic inflammatory injury. Uh, there's three phases. The interesting thing, and in, in, if you look at the myocarditis literature, that if you are exercising during an acute of, and during the replication phase, you might actually accelerate the replication and, uh, and worsen your, your illness with any viral illness. Um, and, and so take grandma's, uh, uh, advice into, you know, if you're not, if you're sick, you know, you, you take it easy. Um, then there's subacute immune responses and the chronic changes that result in scarring. Um, we use myocarditis as the, as the model for how we screen and how we risk stratify. Um, uh, just as an aside, if you are if you look at the myocarditis guidelines and you're, and you're an athlete and you have myocarditis, they say three to six months without um, activity. Uh, and then, uh, so you'd be restricting an enormous number of people if you, if you really were using uncertain um, uh, positivity on, a, on an MRI. Uh, we're not really sure what to do about that. Um, but the reason there's fear of it is that uh, if you look at uh, athletic deaths, um, uh, in 20% in of cardiac deaths are, are suggested to be from myocarditis and a, a very thorough uh, study by the military. I and mean, they, they track everything. Uh, 25 years of military recruits, 20% uh, uh, of the, the patients that died, the, the, the recruits that died uh, were from myocarditis. Um, but that's only 13 myocarditis deaths out of 6.3 million recruits during that period. So it's still really rare. And uh, because of the low number in the literature, it's really uncertain. And if this is a 2020, a couple months ago, myocarditis in athletes is a challenge, not COVID, just myocarditis. And interesting, there's a, a phrase, especially due to myocarditis, the, the deaths did not occur during, immediate, during, during or immediately after exercise, uh, but at rest. So maybe it's not the activity, in which case, why are we only worrying about athletes? So take that number I gave you for for, for um, how many kids are involved in organized athletics and just spread it out to everybody in the population. Um, this is the myocarditis. Uh, I know you can't read it. I'll zoom in on it. Um, uh, and this is not the COVID, but just general myocarditis. And they suggest that athletes with current or recent infection, they never defined what infection was. So I guess if you have a cold. And then they said, if you have any of those symptoms, and if you can read them, chest pain, palpitations, uh, dizziness, dyspnea, syncope, or unexpected performance decrease, uh, then you go into this um, enormous uh, list of testing. And if any of those are positive, you jump to an MRI. 
uh, I don't think we have the, uh, the facility or wherewithal to be able to do that. Um, so in October of 26 of uh, 2020, um, the ACC uh, um, Council on Sports and Exercise uh, section uh, chose some uh, leaders in that council to come up with some guidelines. Um, they preface this uh, by in their in their in their article that uh, in their combined experience and they're from all over the country suggests that most athletes with COVID-19 are asymptomatic to mildly ill and to date. Uh, uh, the uh, return to play risk stratification has yielded few cases of relevant cardiac pathology. There's also the big problem that further abnormality, uh, that the abnormalities they're finding overlap with changes that they see in, in healthy athletes who have never been infected. Uh, maybe non-ischemic myocardial fibrosis it shows up on these MRIs. Um, but they came up with a, a, a model, a schemata, and if you follow it, if you're under 15 years of age and you're asymptomatic, your patient is asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, you drop down into uh, 14 days uh, symptom-free convalescence and then a slow resu resumption. All of the uh, uh, guidelines that are out there all suggest 10 to 14 days convalescence, slow return to play. Um, if you're under 15 and you're uh, severely symptomatic, hospitalized, where the cardiologist should already be involved. And if you're moderately, that's that gray zone, you could consider getting uh, EKG, troponin levels, echocardiograms. If you're over 15, you go to the adult guidelines. And the adult guidelines uh, have the same mild and moderate, uh, asymptomatic and mild uh, uh, path, rest, and then you can go back to playing. Uh, moderately symptomatic, they do suggest uh, getting ECGs echoes and uh, troponin levels. I, th I personally think, and, and uh, in communication with, with uh, the, uh, American uh, the um, New England cardiology group that we have and other people, that's, that's a little bit, um, that might be a little bit too big to bite off. Uh, you'll be restricting so many kids uh, if you define uh, moderate symptoms to include COVID positive with fever, chills, myalgia, um, dyspnea. Uh, the things that are over on the left. I see Dr. Salazar looking at his watch, so I'm uh, zipping along here. <laughs> um, so, uh, so what we've, um, and finally in this article, uh, the athletes without symptoms, they do not recommend, um, uh, the risk stratification is low yield. Mild uh, symptoms, 10 days of rest. Uh, they do not advocate uh, 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 stratification uh, for return to play um, in competitive sports if you've had mild or, or self-limited disease. And that's getting into judgment. Self-limited versus moderate uh, gets, there's some gray zones there. Um, they also really press, and this is in, not just for COVID-19, but the, uh, the Committee on, on Sports and Medicine, uh, which uh, I think pediatrics really should adopt and we try to adopt it, without really great numbers, it's, it's a judgment call. And they're really moving into this shared decision-making uh, as a foundation for a framework of contemporary sports eligibility discussions between the coaches, between the parents, between the students, the athletes, and their, and their docs. There's some things we absolutely know you shouldn't be doing sports if you have, but they're really rare. And most of the things uh, we just don't know about. And there's such advantages that we won't, it could be an hour long lecture, 
a discussion about the benefits of activity in sports and, and the, the long-term ramifications of not doing it, you know, obesity, diabetes, behavior, uh, depression, it, you know, we can't not do sports. Um, now, we've been utilizing this uh, method, uh, th this schemata, and this was from the American College of Cardiology. This came out in July, so it's old news, but it still seems the most reasonable. And we'll zoom in really quick. Um, if you're asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, fever less than three days after, after a 14-day period, slowly get back cleared for participation by the pediatrician, primary care physician, primary care provider. Uh, if you've had moderate symptoms that they were, di that they were describing as prolonged fever, uh, bed rest, but no hospitalizations, uh, and you hadn't had any abnormal testing, uh, and you're under 12, you can go back to playing. A little different age range, and it's a little bit um, arbitrary. Uh, they were basing this, these, these cutoffs, these age cutoffs, more based on the level of activity people might be doing, thinking high school and college kids are going to be really pushing themselves harder. But as Dr. Schreiber was saying, maybe there's a whole different immune response that might be playing into this. Um, if you are... Uh, older than 12, and um, well, I'm having trouble reading this, uh, we, we and, and you had uh, moderate, mild or moderate symptoms, uh, and you're COVID positive, we're, we're advocating a liberal use of electrocardiograms. And if the electrocardiogram is normal, uh, then the primary care physician uh, provider can, can allow them to return to sports. Um, ECGs are pretty sensitive for picking up significant myocarditis and myocardial changes for that. Um, we, ECGs are cheap, they're quick, they're easy. If you're ordering them though, through your own facilities and who, put a note on it for the reader or whoever's gonna sign off on this ECG that is being done for COVID-19 because ECGs are also uh, very nonspecific. There's a lot of little changes that might not have anything to do with COVID. And if, if you have one of those, it, it doesn't mean the patient would need to see a cardiologist, first degree heart block, uh, uh, incomplete bright bundle branch block, things like that, that uh, just a phone call to the cardiologist uh, would suffice. And then we can discuss it. If there, there are ECG changes, um, then you would go down the path for um, uh, seeking expert help through cardiology or through a sports medicine person that uh, really knew if they need to get troponin levels, echoes, uh, MRIs, and then you're talking about restricting these people for a long period of time. Finally, I just wanted to bring up that we were getting a lot of calls suggesting that the, the, the trainers and the schools were insisting that the, the parents uh, get us to sign off, uh, get a, car, a doc to sign off that even in mild cases. If you were COVID positive, you can't go back to play. Um, yesterday, I did look up the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference guidelines. They're revised ones that had just come out on, uh, in late September. Um, they still say their pre-participation physical exam is still good for 13 months. And uh, there's no new guidelines. If you were COVID positive, they need a new clearance. Um, but they do suggest that if you're COVID positive, you should talk to your, your healthcare provider. Um, 
and uh, thank you for your time. And that's it. Thank you, Seth. Uh, greatly appreciated. Very, very informative. And of course, this is something that everyone worries about now that uh, there are some reports of myocarditis and even sudden death in some people that have gone back to uh, to to work out. So I appreciate it. So I'm going to ask both. Uh, uh, we have questions for John and and Seth, and uh, we just need to have you. You want to, John? You want to get up there and just need to, you know, just keep the mask socially distant and. But we, need, we do need you to be by the <laughs> microphone, so that, that's the only way it's going to work. So, John, I have the first question for you. We'll switch places. <laughs> you would just go on that. Yeah, we'll, we'll hit back. It's okay. It's hard to get them both in this. Yeah. Um, all right. If, what measures can we take when, uh, when families either lie about or don't disclose COVID exposure? Um, you know, uh, people are people, and um, uh, we've certainly had some experiences recently where, oh, by the way, we forgot that we traveled to North Dakota, but, you know, it happens. The best, say, the best thing you can do is assume, because there's a lot of community spread, that anybody could be positive. Wear appropriate eye protection and mask when you examine and see patients. Just assume that anybody could be a PUI. I think in that context, you will do fine. Uh, people do what they do, and most people are honest, and, uh, and the risk, herbal risk screening we do is usually correct, but not always. So wear your PPE and assume any patient could be infected in our, in our new era of a lot of community spread in New England. John, this is also for you. Um, as you recall, Florida, Arizona, and Texas had a second wave after not having much of a first wave. Is that what's going on in the Midwest, in Iowa? No, um, it's not. It's a good question. It looks like this is sort of the primary wave. Uh, particularly in the rural Midwest, there was very little COVID first wave, and that, I think, was one of the reasons the leadership in those states really didn't establish good public health measures. So now you've got an absence of good public health measures and a consciousness and worry about this. It just rocketed off. Now, in Wisconsin, it's a little different. There does seem to have been a first wave, and this is a second wave. So it depends on the mid where in the Midwest you were. But in many rural areas, there was very little COVID first round, and now it's just taken off. Seth, this one's for you. Um, there are many uh, young people over the age of 12 that run, lift weights, et cetera, that have mild COVID symptoms and are not asking for advice. When we see them at their yearly exam, should we be ordering EKGs? If they're only mild symptoms, and again, between mild and moderate, I'd say moderate symptoms, uh, yes, I think you could order an ECG. Um, if, and, and they're easy to get. Uh, I know CCMC provides them at multiple locations around the state, and then we, we read them. Um, mild symptoms, you know, you have a little fever, you're not feeling well. Uh, the guidelines don't suggest you would need to get an ECG for that. Um, if they do develop symptoms while they're playing sports uh, or exercising, then yeah, maybe. And I'll, I'll preface this by saying, you know, I'm convinced every kid, because we see so many, has chest pain, has shortness of breath, has uh, dizziness at some point. I and mean, we all had it when we were growing up and probably still do that. So you have to modulate and, and get a good sense of, of what the symptoms really are. So for, uh, does Dan, the Danbury office offer EKGs? Yes. Okay. And what would be the specific changes that you would be looking for that would be of concern? They're usually ST T-wave flattening, T-wave changes, uh, maybe broader bundle branch block or true heart block uh, that we would see maybe in myocarditis. But the first subtle signs are the, the, the nonspecific T-wave changes uh, that would then maybe drive a, 
us to get an echocardiogram and perhaps other studies. And also for you, um, this, this relates to, let me see if I, I lost my question here. Um, yeah, can you comment on uh, NT or pro-BMP as it relates to myocarditis? It, it is on the COVID protocol, but not on the return to sports protocol. Well, pro-BMP wouldn't be. The troponin-level enzymes uh, is tremendously sensitive, and if you're going to have uh, any inflammation of the heart, the troponin levels or a pericarditis are, are going to be positive. The BNP is more of a, a general, is the is the heart stretching, is the uh, cardiac function decreased a little, and it's sensitive. Um, we have not been advocating pro-BNP levels. Uh, when we did have our New England Congenital Conference, th this was a topic, and there was no strong feelings one way or the other, um, from what I recall, anybody you know discussing that. If you have a sick child and the uh, ultrasounds are abnormal or I would, uh, we would follow pro-BNPs. I don't think it would be a screen though, uh, used for a screen. I, I haven't heard, seen that being used. All right, th thank you. Uh, John, this one's for you. Uh, since we're not going to restaurants, many are ordering food out. Is it possible to get the virus from meals prepared by people who have COVID? Good question. Um, you know, the data suggests probably not. Uh, there's been a, a number of epidemiologic studies and the CDC has looked and it looks like food is not uh, considered a major transmitter of the virus. It's not a hardy virus. So uh, I think in general, the answer would be no. Now, obviously if someone's ill and they're not wearing a mask and they're packaging your food and they're touching everything, uh, I guess there's some theoretical potential transmission that way. But what you would do is you remove the food from the wrapping and you microwave it. People do what they do. And I, and I think in general, most people feel that takeout is safe. So uh, again, remember, as you get the takeout, you don't want to be next to somebody not wearing a mask. You have to use the physical distancing and all that as you get the takeout. But I don't think food is a major transmitter. So related to that, Dr. Spiegelman asked, please comment on information released yesterday on possible decrease in importance of disinfecting surfaces compared to the aerosol transmission? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think in general, as I said, it's not a hardy virus and it's in low numbers. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I showed you uh, the data. Well, they, these students from Tufts went out all over Somerville and Medford and touched everything and looked for PCR positivity and all the uh, traffic signals. And they found a lot of COVID, but they estimated the likelihood of getting COVID from touching one of those was like one in 100,000. So the answer is it's unlikely. It's not zero but it's unlikely. And uh, it seems like air transmission, coughing droplets are much more likely to transmit than touching surfaces. But it's not zero, but it's very low. Danielle just makes, Danielle warns us to come in. Yes, Dr. Schreiber, hell, a non-compliant person who's contagious with tuberculosis can be involuntarily isolated. So mandates are new and sometimes necessary. No need to comment on that. Danielle, in your own History words, I love it. That's, that's true. Very well said. Um, a question about the monoclonal antibody, five doses. How do we know who gets it? Only have five. Well, there's a very, actually, there's a very nice criteria from the FDA outlining who would get it. And so if you're above 12, High risk would be sickle cell anemic patients, morbidly obese with diabetes, things like that. So we have a very good pathway that we've already worked out, I, you know, uh, uh, figuring out who those highest risk children would be. And we'd wanna know from the public, by the way, if you have one of those kids early when they're COVID positive, that's when we, we need to know, because they would be treated in an ambulatory 
uh, early on when they first turn PCR positive before they are sick. So the answer is we, the FDA outlined it very clearly. We have a, a very good pathway uh, outline. And I think uh, we could probably put it on the internet actually, and we will do that. Uh, we will put the um, Lilly monoclonal antibody CCMC pathway on the intranet. Okay, John, this is for you as well. And uh, with multiple types and brands of vaccines and multiple vaccine doses likely recommended, how are we going to sort out the uh, vaccine interchangeability? Great question. I have no idea. Uh, I wish I could say, oh, I know that. I don't have any idea. And I think what's going to happen is that probably each company, each hospital, much like influenza, you're going to pick a vaccine and that's what you're going to give your people and there'll be a protocol for that. I don't know um, the mix and match questions and that's going to take many months to work out. I'm sure there will be studies looking at that much like there were with the Haemophilus vaccines, right? There were a lot of work done. Are they interchangeable? Do they work? In fact, they're quite different, some of them. So we're going to need to develop those data. They are not around yet. I do not know the answer. I think the, at least the answer for the mRNA vaccines is that you have to get the same one. That's what would be approved. So the Pfizer, okay. Pfizer dose one would be Pfizer dose two. You really can mix it with Moderna. Right. Those one, the, the synthetic mRNA is a little different, so we got to be careful with that. And, and even, even more, you couldn't mix the mRNA, va mRNA vaccine with the Novavax spike protein antigen vaccine. That's not going to work. We don't know the answer. So I think each institution is going to be sticking with one type of vaccine for their people, and that's where it's going to be for now. All right. Uh, again, for you, John, and uh, we have heard about so many different tests at this point. Are there rapid PCR tests? Are they as reliable as the standard PCR test? Is there any other test schools can have faith in, ones that don't give false positives, false negatives? Is there any rapid test that is reliable? So um, I'm going to stratify this for it. It's a good question. I did, I think last week, I showed you the FDA panel where they've looked at all these tests and they, they spike a sample with a known amount of RNA and they see what the sensitivity is. Lab-based reverse transcriptase PCR are the best. They're highly sensitive and specific. They are the gold standard. The FDA considers them the gold standard. There are other molecular tests now that amplify different things. They're pretty good, but some of them are not so good. The Abbott ID now, which didn't work so well for the administration, um, has had a mixed review in terms of sensitivity and has some problems and continues, although the company claims it doesn't anymore, probably has some problems. Roche has Liot, which is um, very specific and sensitive. It seems to have very good data showing that. The FDA ranks it as a, a very good test. And then there are a couple of tests. The Cepheid, actually, rapid PCR with a cartridge, is much less sensitive than the lab-based RT-PCR. So the molecular tests differ. I have not seen the data or the FDA data for that new test where you would be at home. It costs 50 bucks. It's a one-shot thing. You plug it in and it actually does a little bit of cycling at home, and it's a molecular test. I have not seen the data how sensitive that is. I doubt it's going to be as sensitive as lab-based. So we have a lot, there's a lot of out there in these testing, and I think it's important for us uh, to look at that. And one of the things we could do also is that FDA table is publicly available. It's on their website showing the sensitivity of, uh, of all of the molecular tests. And perhaps we can put a link to that FDA site uh, on our webpage so you can just directly see what, what we know. And, and, and actually, uh, Elizabeth's nodding her head, and we will do that. Seth, this is for you. Um, if we write on a script, uh status post moderate COVID seeking cardiac clearance. Will you be able to write a report clear for, for athletics or needs cardiology appointment? Uh, good. If, if you're, if it's a, a moderate COVID going by those, those guidelines, um, we could write that the EKG is normal or that the EKG has nonspecific or, you know, potential myocarditic changes and we should see the patient. 
Um, without seeing the patient, I don't think we're going to, without examining and, and talking to the family, you know, is the chest pain normal chest pain or is uh, that they're having, I don't, we would need to see that patient before we could clear them. But the guidelines highlight that the primary care provider, if the ECG is normal from uh, moderate and, and below and 15, 15 year olds and older and younger, um, mild and moderates are cleared, uh, the, the ACC guidelines were a little bit more, the um, earlier paper that I presented um, have a little bit more uh, nuance. Um, we would not, so basically, no, we would need to see the patient. So if you, have, if you have a normal ECG and it was mild to moderate symptoms, the guidelines suggest you're okay to quote clear. But again, personal, it, it gets back into their fallback of whose decision is it? And, and there's a movement saying, you know, physicians don't quote clear patients. We give you the best information we can, but the high schools and the coaches want us to quote clear patients. But for a practical nature for the pediatricians out in the community is if they have a normal EKG, you're good. We're good. Unless okay. they're severely. Unless they're severely, but they're mild, moderate with abnormal EKG, best to talk to cardiology. Correct. Best to, to talk terms. to somebody, okay. review it. it, and we should see the patients. All right. So I'm going to get called about this. So the answer would be. Why don't you get close to the microphone? Pretty much, I mean, I'm asking you, Seth, yeah. pretty much for any kid who's been sick with. Any kid who's been sick with COVID. Um, and, and they're all going to, parents are going to say, well, they got sick. They had a cold for three days. Is the COVID positive? The pediatrician's going to get an EKG, right? Is that the major? That, we're going to do that. Yeah. And then, if, then we would triage based on the EKG being normal or not. Correct? Okay. Just want to make sure because we will be asked if, that. If the EKG says nonspecific changes. Then we should probably, and they were COVID positive and they had mild, moderate symptoms, we should probably be, See them. have a discussion. Okay, have a discussion. At and least. then All we right. would decide, you know, get a little bit more history and then likely see the patient. Okay, perfect. All right, very, very good. Um, all right, so that uh, we don't have uh, time for all the other questions. A lot of uh, a lot of questions here in the chat um, about schools, etc. So, John, I'm going to ask you if you could follow up with these questions online and, sure. and respond to them, and, sure. and the ones that Seth has. Great conversation, both of you. Really appreciate it. Uh, once again, for all of you on the online, we had over 190 participants. That's fantastic. To our colleagues in Danbury uh, who join us on Friday mornings, uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of you and all of you here in Connecticut and other parts of the country. Um, John and Seth, have a great Thanksgiving to our academic office. Everyone, please enjoy the holiday. Keep it safe. Keep it distant to wash your hands. Use masks. Take care. Bye-bye.